What a year 2023 has been. It's been very productive and very fruitful, but so tough in many ways. I've been open and vulnerable about this on the show, but I'm also inspired and hopeful about the future thanks to talking to people all over the world who are working tirelessly to serve humanity with their own unique and courageous calling. Whether trauma experts or hormone heroes or the father of biohacking himself, 2023 was filled with incredible people, powerful knowledge and superhuman insights. 2023 was also the year of brain health and even sexual health, both topics featured in this best of the best 2023 episode. Enjoy this eight clip combo highlight package from the eight most downloaded episodes of 2023. Thank you so much for your support and see you in 2024 to explore why and how all of us were made to thrive. And the first clip starts with Dr. Ilan Vora, psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga expert. Do you have anxiety? Well, it could be anxiety. This clip from Dr. Ellen really summarizes the addiction and subsequent anxiety that modern-day humans have with technology. It is a double-edged sword. Tech can be so helpful and save us so much time, but you and me have become the product. Our attention, our eyeballs have been commoditized. So what now? Well, it starts with awareness and then the tools to empower you and your children to use but not abuse tech which can escalate your anxiety. Here is Dr. Vora's expert advice. Find anxiety because I think it's really important for people that are listening. We are talking to Dr. Ellen Vora, a board-certified psychiatrist. This is a real condition. It really does affect your system. So maybe elaborate on how important it is with regards to, you know, cell phones, laptops, Wi-Fi, being aware of sort of cellular radiation so that people can understand that it's affecting their mental health. Yeah. So um, with anxiety, I'll break this one into maybe four branches. <laughs> so the first one is the conversation that's already happening quite a lot. So I don't feel like I have anything new to add, but we know that social media prompts us to compare and despair. We feel FOMO, we feel left out. Never before have we been able to be so aware of when something's happening and we weren't invited or someone else has a life that looks aspirational to us and we only see the highlight reel and we don't see the reality behind that, that everyone has problems. Um, I think that there's even a, a slightly subtler aspect of that conversation, which is that social media with its character limits and the relative anonymity and lack of accountability means that it's just fertile ground for relational aggression. And so we, this, and the research shows us that women are even more prone to being upset and um, feeling down after any kind of exchange that involves relational aggression online. Hmm. So that's a piece of the conversation. The parts that I think are, we're not talking about enough. One is that we just have to appreciate we are living in the attention economy which is to say our attention is the commodity yeah. being competed for by very smart companies. And they know their behavioral psychology. They know their neuroscience. They know that if they prey on our fear response or instill uncertainty or doubt or controversy, we will rubberneck. We will hand over an increasingly large share of our attention. Mm. They get more eyeballs, more clicks, more ad revenue. They're the big winners, but yeah. it's our mental health that's the collateral damage. So I think that the onus is on us, unfortunately, at this point, to navigate the informational landscape, eyes wide open, making very conscious, self-loving choices about who gets to tell us what and in what way and how often and at what time of day. And I think that this is going to impact our mental health across multiple dimensions. But I, I think of this as the banality of fear, which is that currently we're being bathed in fear because it helps companies do well. It helps advertising companies sell us products we don't need. It helps social media companies keep our eyeballs glued to them. And it's it's not a deep nefarious reason always. It's just that people are trying to make money yeah. and the formula is using fear. And so we end up being bathed in it and we're stressed and anxious as a result. The sure. last little branch that's an aspect of anxiety that I think we're not talking enough about is actually just the body postures that happen as we engage with technology. And, you know, humans didn't used to have a need to always be in this position. Yeah. And it, I, I really think about how on a very 
just mechanical level, we can't breathe as deeply. Our, our, the mechanics of our lungs don't operate as well when we're hunched over. Um, but I think on a more esoteric level about the flow of whether you want to call it blood flow, cerebral spinal fluid, or even chi or prana, I think it's cutting off the smooth flow of energy around our bodies. So I think our brains aren't functioning as well. It's contributing to our facial structure. We're, we're mouth mm. breathing and not nose breathing. Yeah. We're not sleeping as well. Our cognition is impacted negatively. So there's just so many ways that the postures involved in this tighten us and contract us and contribute to poor health on a very mechanical level. Cool. The second clip, Dr. Zach Bush, triple board certified specialist. This was a huge podcast for me. Zach is not looking to only solve the health of the individual, but has an enormous vision to experience a world where humanity heals and thrives with a reconnection to nature. I so love his sincerity and authenticity to see our ecosystems come back to life from the toxic devastation we have caused. That's why he launched Farmers Footprint, an international organization where farmers can share their stories of how they have brought life back to the planet. Dr. Bush is a true health hero and someone whose altruistic motives can be felt and seen. Hear, believe, and act on this possible future. Farmer's footprint and journey of intrinsic health, I think those are two important things that people can connect with. We'll put everything in the show notes, but possibly just give us a quick wrap on how important those two areas are to you. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I'm eager for these things to re-express themselves in, in Africa. Farmer's Footprint, um, we founded in the United States uh, about five years ago, and uh, we did that. We developed a technique for storytelling as a method for transformation. And so we allowed farmers to start to tell their own stories of transformation through the regenerative agricultural practices that they were discovering. And we found that every farmer had a different version of regeneration. Every farmer had a different you know, story into their own new wealth and their own new prosperity found in their own independence from chemical companies, from inputs, chemical inputs and fertilizers and herbicides, pesticides, everything that was making them go bankrupt. They let go of all of that and let nature re-express itself within their piece of land. And of course, every piece of land, every piece of nature would express itself differently. And so we have, you know, a hundred or so stories told now around the country and around the world of regeneration happening through people rather than from, from people. And so uh, Farmers Footprint U.S. was spawned. That's now uh, uh, been a fertile place for rebirth. So we, we birthed uh, Farmers Footprint Australia, Farmers Footprint UK, and is currently coming off the ground. Farmers Footprint New Zealand is, is marked out for some time later this year. And we're hoping Farmers Footprint uh, South Africa gets, gets its foothold this year as well. And so I'll be back there again in April. I was there a couple of times last year and, and eager to be back there again a couple of times this year to keep the momentum building towards uh, South Africa's ability to express farmer's footprint. Farmer's footprint, uh, that the name came from an incredible Japanese proverb that says that the best fertilizer for a garden is the, the farmer's footprint. And uh, that uh, is a beautiful story of nature's but not only welcoming us into reality, but nature's value for humans. Nature wanted humans to walk on her surface. And we have seen that when people walk and witness nature, nature thrives more. In, in the Judeo-Christian world, this has been called, you know, humanity has been called the bride of Christ or the bride of source, you know. To be a spouse to nature is to be its witness. And we all are drive towards partnership, whether it's marriage or some other model, we drive for that deep in our subconscious systems and our social systems reinforce that because it is important to be seen. It is important to have our beauty witnessed. That's why the farmer's footprint is such an incredible fertilizer for earth is she wants to be seen. And so we have an opportunity to become the witness to the beauty of nature. And when our feet become the modus of, of reconnection, earth thrives. And we've seen that with the keystone species when the lion puts its paw print back on earth and is allowed to become the keystone species in a small territory. Earth thrives, the water systems return. When the bison, the, the buffalo of North America put their hooves 
on earth, the rivers start to flow again. When the paw of the wolf is returned to Yellowstone National Park in northern uh, parts of the United States, the river systems flow again and it is restored. The footprint of the farmer is the best fertilizer. When we humble ourselves to the point of just being witness as farmers rather than extractive as farmers, uh, we will see earth thrive beneath our feet and we can rebirth that, that regenerative future. So uh, farmer's footprint is, is something to take a look at as what's been expressed in North America, Australia, and elsewhere. But we're most excited you know, for, for Africa to begin to express its story of witness to its own beauty, of witness to its own earth. And for humanity there in Africa to step into that keystone relationship of we can put our feet back on this earth and this earth will respond with love and abundance in measures that we can't even imagine. Uh, so that's farmersfootprint.us. You can take a look at uh, farmersfootprint.org.australia.us is another one. But you know, ultimately, um, I would uh, take, take confidence that this movement is, is moving globally. But uh, more importantly than my websites or my resources out there, um, I would start to remap your, your household in its wealth and start to reimagine nature expressing itself through each of you in the household, each of you in the extended family, each of you in the extended community, and start to remap your own wealth map towards an abundant future where nature is expressing itself through every relationship you have. And uh, you'll be part of that future. It, it will emerge through you. And uh, I'll be honored to be witness to that. Third clip, Dr. Dale Bredesen, board-certified neurologist and psychiatrist who wrote a medical breakthrough book called The End of Alzheimer's. Yes, believe it, it is possible. Alzheimer's, a subtype of dementia, can be prevented and reversed. In fact, Dr. Bredesen has an 84% success rate with his RECODE program. That's so impressive, it's unbelievable. Dale gives a very clear explanation of what needs to be tested to assess brain and mental health and the pillars that are foundational for cognitive performance. Listen to the following clip with the lenses of how cutting-edge health technology is changing the outcomes of many chronic diseases. And remember, most new tech and research takes 20 years to get to your primary care physician or general practitioner. Enjoy the clip. These metabolic and toxic and bacteriological and gut-related, these, these um, systems are systems that go awry and that have beautiful reversibility. So this old idea, you know, people, when I first sent the first paper we published was back in 2014, showing reversal of cognitive decline. And people just said, it's impossible. If anyone had reversed cognitive decline in Alzheimer's, it would be in all the papers around the world. Well, you know, maybe it should have been. We're doing it again. We've got thousands of people now who've been on this. But just as you said, the neurologists will say, no, I, I can't believe it. That's not possible because they're still looking at this as the old fashioned way of, oh, there's a misfolded protein. Let's remove the misfolded protein. Well, why do you think that's there? It's, it's part of this overall network alteration. And by the way, you know, we came to this originally because we were studying the cellular and molecular signaling of amyloid precursor protein, APP, which is the thing associated with Alzheimer's disease. It's the parent of the little hunk of, of peptide, which makes amyloid. And so what we found is this thing is in a remarkable molecular switch. When things are good, it's on the good side, it's being cut at one site, it's telling you, yes, grow, make synapses, maintain synapses. When things are bad, you have infections, you've got poor dentition, all these things that are getting into your brain. It goes into a protective downsizing mode, again, just as our countries did during the pandemic, and it now makes the amyloid, which guess what? Kills bacteria, it kills fungi, it kills viruses. So you can see why this stuff is made. You're not making it to give yourself Alzheimer's, yeah. making it to protect yourself. Yeah. But of course, it's one of the things it's doing is saying you can't support a brain with 500 trillion synapses. Exactly. So you have to find out those things, look at them. And that's why we do the first layer of tests. Then okay. the idea is you look to see which ones are abnormal because you don't need to do the second layer on everybody. Mm. That's going to be 
you know, you're going to end up with a million dollar workup. You don't need Now, before that. you get there, I just want to make a comment. So the amyloid beta is actually a downstream effect of what's actually happening from a biochemical aspect in your brain. It's the body's response to what's actually happening. Absolutely. Um, it is a response and it's quite an important one because it is an antimicrobial peptide. It is protecting you. And no surprise, we've seen a number of people uh, who, as I mentioned earlier for Sally, went, went in and as they started to remove the amyloid, they got worse. So yeah. when you're removing that, it's very much like removing a protective cytokine. So if you go back again to the pandemic, so there's some beautiful analogies here. So you go to the pandemic. What did people die of? People died of cytokine storm. Oh. You had the insult but in fact, it turns out that SARS-CoV-2 has specific mechanism to prevent you from an early response, which is why basically your body does okay for a little while. And then ultimately it recognizes that, oh my gosh, it's everywhere. So you just pour out these cytokines, of course, trying to kill the virus, but they are damaging to your body as well. And you end up dying from cytokine storm. In Alzheimer's, the same thing happens, yeah. but we die from cytokine drizzle. It's just perking along. Your HSCRP is often a little high. Your microglia in your brain are activated. You are activating this because you are trying to clean up this problem. So again, the idea of let's just shut down the response is a 20th century yeah. naive view. Mm. What we want to determine is what are you responding to? Unlike in the pandemic where we were all responding to one virus, you can be responding to dozens and dozens of different things. Yeah. So you got to turn you got to figure those out. Is this P gingivalis from your oral microbiome? Is this a leaky gut? Is this chronic sinusitis? Is this metabolic syndrome? Yeah. Is this toxin exposure? So we're looking initially across at all of these. That's first layer. Then, the yeah, then, then that's the first layer. Then if you find, ah, here's the problem with this person, then you're going to focus in on that. And then you're going to do additional tests in that area. So when you then start to improve, let's talk about the other specifics. And then there's some basics. The basics are seven things. So it turns out, as you know, that Diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training, detox, and some basic targeted supplements. That's the way to start for everybody because that's what's going to optimize your support. You are going to return the normal support to your remarkable synaptic uh, network. And then with that, and you know, again, when I was training in medical school and in residency and in fellowship, there was no belief that things like diet had any any effect mm. on on the on brain disease. It was all about, you know, let's find out what's the problem and let's write a prescription for it, yeah. which unfortunately simply hasn't worked for Alzheimer's disease. And again, yeah. it's because people are thinking about it the wrong way. Fourth clip, Dr. Jamie Seaman. Has modern life got the better of your health? Dr. Jamie Seaman, an obstetrician and gynecologist and mother of three, can truly empathize with the pace and the pressure of what it means to thrive in your family, career, and health. I love this conversation for many reasons, but my highlight was how authentic and pragmatic Jamie is. She shares when and how she exercises and the mindset and motivation to keep going. This clip is also not only for the ladies, but for the men too, because our lifestyles are a reflection of our values, and our values are a reflection of our identities. So, who are you? For the women that we sort of have at Matis Rye, we do a lot of corporate uh, executive work, CEOs, small, medium enterprises. They just keep on telling me, I've got kids, got to take them to school. Uh, I've got a lot of pressure. I've got to make it work. When can I exercise? Uh, you know, they don't have the time to prepare their meals. So that's why I say you're quite an inspiration because you've got three small little girls and you've got a career. So take us through, number one, your exercise or movement regime, including even things like steps, you know, how important you think daily steps are. But give us an overall view on health and wellness with regards to exercise. Well, the most important thing I'm going to say is that if there's a mom listening that's got kids and a career and things like that, for years of my life, it was, you know, 
my kids and my family and my career. And I have to be at work at this time and come home at this time. And because I didn't take care of myself, I felt like crap. So any extra time I had, the last thing I wanted to do, you know, was go exercise. And if you don't enjoy something, let me tell you right now, you might stick with it for a short period of time, but you're not going to stick with it long-term. Okay. So the way that I view the gym and that I view exercise, because I'm going to tell you right now, I don't always feel like getting up at 5 a.m. and going to the gym. I don't. But how I view it is that it is the most important thing for me to do that day. I call it paying yourself first. It comes before work. It comes before I'm up getting the kids ready for school. It happens at 5 a.m. That's why it's the first thing of the day. But I also see it as an opportunity to get better at hard things. I think there's benefits to your muscles and growing muscles and cardiovascular benefits to exercise. But I think there's a level of mental resilience that comes through doing hard things like trying to lift heavy weights. And, you know, when do you quit? When do you throw in the towel? How do you push through it? How do you show up when you don't want to be there? Yeah. So that's that's kind of really honestly the biggest take home that I can give anybody listening right now. And I'm sorry, um, I'm going to jump in there because that's so important. Michael Easter's book called The Comfort Crisis. I don't know if you've read it, but I think you should interview him on your podcast. Talks exactly about this whole process of doing these things out of comfort. You know, he talks about this thing of going out and doing something really, really hard. It builds resilience. It builds something physically, emotionally, and mentally. So it'd be a really, he's got an incredible book. His audio book is brilliant, but I wanted to just drop that in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but my training has has evolved through the years, just like my diet. So I used to, uh, you guys can't see it because my background is blurred out, but there's this like weightlifting trophy over my left shoulder. I was a two-time lifter of the year at Nebraska. So we're talking kind of your normal Olympic lifts, so squatting, benching, hang clean, those types of things. When I went to medical school, I did a little stint of P90X and I was like, you know, hitting the weights, but I really started to transition to just like a lot of cardio. I was doing the elliptical machine. Um, after my second daughter was born, I was like, oh, I got to get this baby weight off. I think I'm going to sign up for a half marathon. So I was just running, running a half an hour, hour up to like two hours at a time to train for this half marathon. And I look back now at the pictures and like... Um, my body composition, I'm still very fluffy, right? And I'm like running half marathons. And then after my third daughter was born, um, I was doing like some kickboxing and some pure bar classes. But like I had really almost kind of vowed when I left college that I wasn't going to lift again. And a lot of it, I know a woman listening right now will resonate that as I was a young girl growing up in the 80s and 90s, the the society, the cultural you know, kind of view on women was that women, first of all, I call it like cocaine model chic. Like it was very skinny, um, no muscle, like that was like feminine beauty. And so I was always navigating as an athlete, like that I didn't fit in, like my legs are too big. I don't want to look too big. I don't want to look too bulky. Like what every woman says, like when somebody tells them to start mm. lifting weights. So I had really like on purpose, stayed away from weights for a really long time. And then after I got my diet back in a good place, I had a come to Jesus with myself that I really need to start lifting again. And so in 2018 was when I got back into lifting weights more regularly. And I was doing a lot of hit back then. And now I've really realized that we're overdoing a lot of the high intensity things like true hit, like true sprint training should be done for like a very short amount of time. But I was going to a gym where they had these like hour long hit sessions. And I mean, I was going hard for an hour. Um, and I realized that that just wasn't sustainable. Like I want to live a really long time. So my training now I lift really heavy on Mondays. So, um, and then on Tuesdays I do a little bit more accessory, uh, type movements, Wednesdays, um, I do a little bit more recovery. And then on Thursdays, I do heavy again. So full body, but I'm back to like, you know, hex bar deadlifts. And I'm trying to do lifting techniques that reduce risk of injury. Like I don't want to get injured. Like I'm a lot of people ask me if I do CrossFit and I don't, and I'm just, I'm a surgeon. So like, I can't tear a shoulder. I can't like my profession. I, I can't get disabled. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so I am cautious in that I'm cautious in that regard, but, um, but I do some sprinting. Um, I try new things. I added kettlebells this last year to try to kind of, you know, change things up because we do kind of get bored, you know, after a period of time. And so I'm always trying kind of 
find new things, but I do dedicated weight training, um, four times a week. And, but I also have prioritized recovery. Hi, I'm made to thrive nation. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show as this helps me get this cutting edge health info into more people's minds and hearts. Also, I'm building a radical health community on Instagram and LinkedIn, so I would so appreciate your support and send me a DM with any feedback or advice. My handle is Steve Stabs. Thanks again, and now back to the show. Fifth clip, Dr. Carl Gillett, physician and hormone expert. Fatigue is the most common symptom that my patients and my clients come to see me for. There could be so many reasons. One I believe is the testosterone deficiency. I have in 25 years of practice never seen such a deficiency of testosterone in both males and females. Testosterone replacement therapy or TRT is a powerful sword in your treatment protocol to beat fatigue and the hormonal dysregulation that is such a big factor in today's modern life. But there are two edges, a powerful option to optimize your energy, mental performance and muscle function, but there are possible and significant side effects if you don't do it right. This episode turned out to be a very technical one with a health genius, Dr. Carl. So if you want a deep dive into TRT and hormones, go and listen to the full show. If you want the highlights, then this clip is such a clear, simple and short explanation on the importance and risks of TRT. Now let's go on to TRT. Uh, tell us about the risks. You know, there was a lot of you know, indication about risk to prostate health and then looking at uh, causing emboli, you know, pulmonary embolism and looking at venous embolism. What is your view now on TRT with regards to safety and risk? Yeah, so uh, TRT, I would say with the lab, last study that came out. It's not like one study makes a huge difference, but there was a big study out of the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, I believe in a week, our podcast on that comes out. We filmed it last week. Mm-hmm. So it's almost done editing. Um, and we posted about it on Instagram as well. But yeah, it looks at the risks, uh, the cardiovascular risks or the heart risks of TRT. Mm-hmm. And they chose an extremely high risk population. So they had a lot of balls to choose that group. So I was very thankful for that. But basically, it did not increase the incidence of heart attack or stroke. It slightly decreased the incidence of diabetes. They studied them for just three years. So um, it's hard to make a huge difference in that. But it did have a slight clinically significant effect. And there were slightly more blood clots and also uh, slightly more incidences of AFib or arrhythmias. And the, I guess the caveat to that is the blood pressure slightly increased and we don't know what uh, antihypertensive therapy they used. So for individuals on TRT that are also high risk, if they're not a high risk group, then they likely still have some of these same risks, but they're just not going to happen near as often. Um, for example, I think one in a hundred got a blood clot in the lung, potentially life-threatening condition that was in this very high group, uh, high risk group. And one in 200 got a blood clot that was in the placebo group. But um, the they didn't screen them for things like factor V laden, which is a pretty common cause of um, a, a hypercoagulable predisposition. Basically, mm-hmm. your blood will clot easier. And there's other things like prothrombin three, antithrombin, or sorry, prothrombin, antithrombin three, lupus antiquagulant, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, um, high platelet counts secondary to estrogen. So the higher your estrogen goes, you need to check your platelets to make sure they don't go too up go far. And then thromboxane, which is basically the stickiness of your platelet, which even endogenous testosterone will um, dysregulate. So you have to take into account all of these factors. That's why I say, if you're a hormone expert, you can't just know how to dial in hormones. There's lots of uh, health coaches. Actually, there's just lots of people that are interested in health optimization and they could likely, if they were allowed to go get over-the-counter testosterone, they could get labs on my website without, you know, they could just go get them themselves, no oversight whatsoever. And they could bring themselves to a total testosterone of 900 and a free testosterone of 25 pretty easily. But you have to be well-versed in all organ systems. So depending on the person, rather than just, you know, 
instead of ordering those tests for every single individual, choose the ones that are at moderate or high risk. And then for those at low risk, you still mention them, but um, say, you know, regardless of this, then it's not going to significantly change our management. That's why it's important to get, uh, you know, actual health advice rather than self-prescribing your TRT. But overall, pretty safe if guided by very, I mean, it's another level of depth here of hormonal health and organ systems, but generally well tolerated. But once you start TRT, is that it? you got to be on for good. I mean, once you start that process, does someone then have to just sort of budget long term with regards to TRT? The way I describe it is it's a indefinite commitment. I used to say lifetime commitment. Mm. If you come off, then there's a 99.8% chance that you can regain all of your previous function. If you come off cold turkey, you're going to feel terrible when you come off. So I don't recommend that anybody does that. But there are many good ways to get people off TRT. And I've helped probably hundreds of people at this point get off TRT for various different reasons. But most that come off just weren't ready to come on or they weren't thinking about there was an unforeseen side effect, often fertility. Mm. That being said, some of the best sperm counts that I've ever seen are men on TRT, um, okay. often with HCG, FSH, L-carnitine, et cetera, gonadotropin sometimes, but still um, it's most people that go on TRT can come off. That's why it's very important to know your pre-TRT, LH, FSH, and total and free testosterone, and ideally prolactin and estradiol as well, because that way you can know what to expect that you can get back to. Okay. And that's male. And I mean, obviously female, are you supplementing TRT a lot with a lot of females now? Is it in the cream form? Is it the injectable form? Are they needing as much TRT as the male? I'd say about 50% of the times, uh, especially females with low DHEA sulfate, I supplement with TRT over supplementing with DHEA sulfate because often it just converts to estradiol even more often. And a lot of times they're already on a low dose of estradiol. Mm -hmm. Some females, especially with very low testosterone, before menopause or right around the time of menopause, I supplement with just testosterone and progesterone because they're still producing estradiol, but their progesterone levels have significantly decreased to where they're having symptoms and also their androgen levels have decreased to where they're noticing body composition and metabolic changes. Mm. Um, Lately, especially for females that no longer desire fertility, I've really liked oral lymphatically absorbed testosterone undecanoate with dutasteride, Um, a very, it's extremely female friendly, partly because you can take it just in the morning partly because you can take dutasteride with it and prevent um, androgenic side effects. Um, Lymphatically absorbed and also cream converts to DHT more often. So great for females that are less sensitive to androgens, females that are more sensitive to androgens, almost paradoxically, injectable testosterone is often a better form. So a lot of times if a female has an average SHBG, quite sensitive to androgens, I'll use something just like three migs a week of injectable testosterone cypionate and it won't budge their shpg that much and it'll be just enough to get them the metabolic benefit and also convert to estradiol a bit sixth clip brit frank licensed neuropsychotherapist trauma it's become a huge buzzword but do you know the difference between traumatic events and trauma trauma is not what happens to you but what happens inside of you This was one of my favorite shows of 2023 with just the most caring and beautiful soul, Britt Frank, a licensed neuropsychotherapist. Britt has written an incredible book called The Science of Stuck. Just go and get it. You need this book in your life and your family's life. Why? Because many people are trying to change their lives without addressing the scars and wounds that lie deep within. Possibly you're an HSP, a highly sensitive person, highly discerning and intuitive soul, but very susceptible to this crazy world. If you want a summary on what trauma is and why you may be stuck, then listen to this clip. And in fact, go and listen to the full podcast. But just define or just unpack that term that you've had on your website. Sure. And a lot of people tend to get very angry very quickly, reasonably, when they see that, wait a minute, trauma is what happens in my brain. Like it's my brain just interpret, like, obviously, if we're talking things like oppression, atrocities, genocide, war, assault on either a personal level or a collective level global, 
there are things that are bad. There are events that are inherently traumatic, which is why, especially nowadays with trauma being such a buzzy, quote, trendy word, as a trauma expert, it's really important to me to define what we're talking about. So a traumatic event is those events that I just listed, things that we can all get together and agree are bad. Like they are bad. There is no subjective interpretation. Assault is bad. Genocide is bad. All of those things are bad. Trauma as that word is defined, is the internal process. I I like to call it the brain's digestion process. So if you're subject to a traumatic event, which is the external, your brain is reasonably going to not metabolize that. Just like if you were to ingest contaminated food, you're going to get sick. Like maybe there are a few people who don't get sick when they eat poisoned food, but generally the majority of us, when exposed to bacteria in our food or a traumatic event are going to experience trauma. But that said, you can also experience trauma, the internal brain indigestion process from events that nobody would ever even think of as traumatic. Now, that doesn't mean I'm comparing them. So let's say you get into a minor car accident and suddenly you can't sleep and you're shaking and you're sweating and you're panicking. I'm not comparing a fender bender to genocide. I am saying that our brains do brain things and what gets coded in one person's body as indigestion might not necessarily be for the other. And for the, on the reverse, you can be exposed to traumatic events and not actually get PTSD and not sustain long-term trauma, just like you can be exposed to something that we wouldn't necessarily code as a traumatic event. And nevertheless, here we are. So a traumatic event is the external, trauma is the internal metabolic, quote, the way I frame mm. it, process. Okay, so that's pretty profound. So what you're saying is certain people can experience an event like a car accident and it doesn't cause trauma in their bodies. And I refer to trauma as a wound. And, and you're referring to that wound in the brain system, which is very interesting because I've been a doctor of Chinese medicine for 24 years now. You know, I've dealt with a lot of patients with regards to functional medicine and using all different types of techniques from functional medicine to ozone to acupuncture to herbal medicine, which has been very sort of profound and helpful for my patients. But it's just interesting how someone can have a car accident and it can sort of someone else got injured or the car was written off and they don't have that wound or the wound is very small that they just normal life and daily, they just process it and it doesn't cause a long-term wound that causes a trigger while others have a wound, a deep wound that causes significant problems, especially with regards to car accidents. So why are certain people, you know, firstly, they they have an event and it causes a wound, it causes a deep wound that then they have to deal with and process in order for not to trigger certain sort of behavioral coping mechanisms? Sure. And I wish I had a neat and clean answer to that. I can tell you it's certainly not a question of strength versus weakness or a good person versus a bad person or a moral person. It's not about anything logical or anything cognitive. Our brains and our bodies are made up, and you know this, of just the, the nuance is infinite. Genetics, environments, childhood, caregivers, family of origin, community support, levels of external resources, level of internal resilience, which can be defined by lots of things and mitigated by lots of things. You know, someone with really, really strong you know, internal organs who is super healthy might have an easier time with a psychological trauma. I'm not saying that's always the case. Certainly that's not always the case, mm. but why some people experience trauma and others is way too complex for anyone really to answer. My short, very reductive answer is because our brains are, our, our brains do brain things. Mm. And often much of what our brains do is automatic. It's often subject to generations of behavioral patterns of thinking, being, and doing that are passed down. A trauma from my great-great-grandmother could be impacting me today, whereas you don't have that same trauma from your great-great-grandmother. So exposed to the same stimulus, we both react differently. So rather than mm -hmm. why did this happen or why is my body reacting like this, which is an interesting question, a much better approach is what are my options? What are my resources in this moment to help myself get back to baseline? Because we can answer the why 
why and still feel stuck. We can answer the Mm. why and still feel terrible. So rather than why the trauma, what's our solution and what are my choices in this moment? The why question is important and it's interesting, but it's not the first line of defense when you're suffering. Seventh clip, Dave Asprey, the father of biohacking. Your doctor is not your daddy and your doctor is not God. In fact, as I write this short intro, I sit here on the island of Cyprus treating my own mother who suffered a stroke after heart surgery. I am deeply saddened and traumatized at the events and injustice that has befallen my own mother. I hear her words. The doctor said, Steve, my cardiologist said I needed the surgery and didn't mention any risks. If you hear one thing from this clip, it's this. Your health is your own accountability. I'll say it again. It's your very own accountability. When you understand this, you'll action a life that researches and questions medical interventions, whether they come from traditional Western doctors or natural medicine physicians. Please, please, if you're going to do a highly invasive procedure, then research. Ask the right questions. Take someone with you to the appointment. Get at least two opinions and don't rush your decision. Dave Asprey, the father of biohacking, clearly lays out the most important value that you need to have regarding your health and it's this. Your health is your responsibility. Do not hand it over to your doctor, the accountability of your health to your physician. This was a cracker of an episode with a massive health legend who has spread the message of biohacking far and wide. Oh, my doctor said it's not possible. They just accepted. Or they said, oh, the pharmacy said I needed to take this for the rest of my life. Well, I'm going to take it. So give us some keys there with regards to accountability because biohacking is something that we are really – uh, propagating in the corporate world in in South Africa and beyond with the biggest bank in Africa. And it's really tough to get people to take on this accountability of their health. Mm. Well, part of this has to do with just having an adult mind. Your doctor is not your daddy. Your employer is not your daddy. Your insurance company is not your daddy. Your pharmacist is not your daddy. And for God's sake, your government is not your daddy. Right? And people were conditioned as mammals when we're young. We are dependent on others for our self-care. And until you wake up one day and you go, oh, my God, none of these people are interested in my self-care. Your insurance company is interested in lowering costs and not paying you. Your doctor, if they're a good person, which most of them are, is very interested in helping you heal and making you well, but they are not allowed to spend enough time with you because of insurance companies. So their interest becomes, how do I do the minimum necessary to get this person in and out so I can see the next person because I have more demand that I have time, right? And this is not throwing doctors under the bus at all. Most doctors that I know genuinely are healers and wanna help and they're unhappy and frustrated and stressed because of the system we built. So you can't rely on your doctor to manage your health and your upgrading, but you can rely on them if you break your arm or you have an infection. They might not tell you why you have an infection. They might not tell you that if you had enough minerals, you wouldn't have broken your arm in the first place. Those are different things. That's not your doctor's job. That's your job. So your job is to be thriving. Your job is to be healthy. And there is no one who can do that for you other than you. Because 90% of this is what you put in your mouth. It's the lighting that you expose yourself to. It's the time you go to bed. It's how much alcohol you drink. It's how many toxins from plants or humans that you put into your body and how good you are getting rid of them. So the biohacking process starts with, okay, you're in charge. You get to change the environment around you. You get to decide if you breathe exhaust every day, or maybe you get an air filter or you close the window, whatever is necessary, because breathing exhaust every day is almost like smoking in terms of risk. It also lowers your IQ, especially in Africa where there's still lead in the fuel. And lead lowers your IQ measurably and increases cardiovascular risk. So you should take whatever steps you can to get it out of your body or minimize your exposure, knowing you can't hide from all lead in the environment. It's not possible. So how do you become a resilient human being who knows the things that are not good for you, minimizes those, and is able to more than handle them when you come across them? Uh, And that's at the core of, of this. It would be so convenient if you could just take all of your money and give it to someone who would handle it for you. And you could take all of your health and give it to someone who would handle it for you. You ever try taking all of your money and giving it to a money manager? 
they somehow lose money while they make money. They lose your money and they make money and they do it over and over. And it's the same thing with your health. Yeah. Eighth clip, Jaya, the somatic sexologist. Sexual health is foundational to your overall health. Now that might be offensive to many of you, but please give Jaya a chance to unpack the why, the what, and the how of enjoying your sexuality in order for you to live a thriving life. In this short but powerful discussion, she explains how you need to look at and action the four pillars that can help you improve or maintain your sexual health and performance. What sexual archetype are you? What sexual language do you speak? Please, please go and do her online assessment quiz. It's profound and very affordable. Maybe you speak sensual and maybe your partner speaks kinky. That may lead to some serious miscommunication. Also, Jaya was on Gwyneth Paltrow's Netflix Sex, Love and Goop documentary. Go and check it out and enjoy the clip. It's fascinating to see that this dysregulation of hormonal health, I think, is one of the biggest reasons why people are struggling with their sexuality. Possibly you can talk into sort of the Eastern dominance that's happening out there and just the dysregulation, you know, biophysically yeah. and chemically could be one of the big reasons about people's like lack of sexual health. A hundred percent. I see this. And you know, it's interesting in my career over the 30 years that I've been working, I see people younger and younger with low testosterone and, and estrogen dominance in their bodies. And there's a number of things that I look at. So I always look at the rule of four and I actually learned this from the physician who was like, my patients with terminal illness who keep their sexuality intact live. And I was like, well, what are the things you're looking at? And he was always looking at four things. One, what's happening in the biochemistry, which is what we're talking about. You know, why are we getting estrogen dominance? What's happening in the water? What's happening in our food? What are the foods you're eating? Are you using things that are causing some of that in the environment? Like um, some of the estrogenic, um, like air fresheners or things like that, you know, that, that can, I had a, I had a story from a functional medicine doctor I was working with and um, she was telling me how she had a client who was spraying the like air fresheners that take smells out of the environment all over his body and the car before he was going to work. And he was started lactating, you know, so like, and then they took that all away and he stopped lactating. So like things like that, that are in our environmental, in, in our environment that are affecting our biochemistry and how is that environment affecting your biochemistry? I think it's a really good thing to look at and to understand because we don't understand. We just get these things and we have them around our house and in our environment and then they're affecting our hormones. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's something to consider. And then we have by the emotional aspects. So how are our emotional world, how is our emotional world affecting our biochemistry, how is that affecting our bodies? And we're, we're really looking at that because what is the relationship between you and your partner or lack of a partner? And how is that affecting your overall health and, and your libido, you know, like, oh, you're fighting with your partner every day. For some people that increases libido for other people, mo the majority of people, about 80%, if you're in stress in your relationship, it's going to lower libido. And I'll explain a little bit more about the types because one of those types, doesn't matter what's happening in their world, sex is actually the thing that relaxes them. So if you're having a fight with your partner, you want to go to sex, yeah. but that's a small per smaller percentage of people. And then that's, we've that's got me, the sexual. I'm stressed, let's have sex, and then we'll feel better. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, and then we have the so we looked at biochemical, we have the emotional, we also have the physical. So what's happening in the physical body, you know. Is there muscle tension? Is the vagus, how, what's happening in the nervous system? You know, is the vagus nerve strong or is, do we need to have more stimulation of that vagal complex, which then will lower some of the stress on the body that will um, have you have more libido or want to have more sex? So we're looking at the mechanical aspects and then especially with things like erectile dysfunction or looking at premature ejaculation, it, which are the two most common things that people with, with, that are male bodied, cock bodied, you know, those people I'm, I'm like, can I say cock on this? You said it was X-rated <laughs> that are cock bodied, um, that they, you know, we're looking at, well, what's happening in the musculature of the pelvic floor and how is that then affecting the system? 
are the muscles weak, which from all the sitting that we do, we're not squatting. We're not like, you know, this flat footed squats are so good for us, but we're sitting in chairs in front of computers more and more these days. So how's that affecting things? And then the final one is the bioenergetics. You were bioenergetic before we're any of this. So how, how is the health of the cell bioenergetically? What's happening in the meridians? Is there scar tissue? Have you had, you know, I've worked with athletes and they've got these uh, surgeries sometimes that happen because they get muscle tears and then the scar tissue infiltrates into the pelvic floor. And then that's affecting the whole energetic system. Cause if you have scar tissue in the midline, then that affects the vessel. You know, you know, some of this from some yeah. of your work. So, um, you know, I'm really looking at the whole picture from those four and becoming more of an erotic detective when we're looking at these things and why now in our culture, are we seeing less and less of sexual function. And then I have also these other curiosities about population. And when a species has a high population, we see things in other species to control that population that happen naturally. Um, and so that's also an interesting inquiry as well. Cool mates of Thrive Nation, that's a wrap for 2023. Trusting you gained much from my podcast and you've changed habits and sustained a healthier lifestyle in 2023. Please send me your feedback and questions to either connect at matethrive.co.za or my WhatsApp direct line 064-871-0308. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast as it's so beneficial to the show and share it with your friends and your family. I'm your host, Steve Stavs, Africa's pro biohacker and health futurist. And this is... The Made to Thrive Show. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Made to Thrive Show. New episodes are released weekly and are published exclusively on the Made to Thrive podcast link. If you're interested in receiving more thriving insights as well as receiving other exclusive member benefits, visit madetothrive.co.za forward slash subscribe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and they should seek the assistance of healthcare professionals for any such conditions.